All right, well, welcome to the study in Daniel. Um, tonight we're going to be covering uh, a history uh, leading into Daniel, and then also uh, the years following Daniel, uh, leading up to the Messiah, and leading up to an eternal kingdom. So, some of the questions that we bring into the book kind of dictate the answers that the book provides. And so in order to really get a good grasp on what's going on, I think we kind of need to set the stage and, and uh, look into the background of, of Daniel. What are some of the issues that the people are facing? Um, and so when it comes to reading the Bible, a lot of times we run into um, just problems because they, we like to read the Bible as though it's written to us. And we're never the primary audience for the Bible. And uh, sometimes just the difference between who we are and and the baggage that we bring to the Bible and what um, the place in life that, that people are, uh, the original audience of the Bible, is sometimes just so vastly different that uh, we end up missing what's going on. And so um, to really, I think, digest properly the answers that God's providing um, we kind of need to make sure that we're asking the right questions. And I think the key to that in this case is, is just understanding the situation that the people are facing. And so I want to kind of illustrate that with just, uh, just kind of imagine this scenario. So uh, go ahead and close your eyes and I'm just going to kind of read. And just imagine your life, say, 40 years from now. Um, you're old, you're coming to the end of your days, and uh, with a sense of peace, you look back at the work that you've done, the friendships that you've made, the relationships that you've invested in, the children that you've raised, the values that they pass on to their children, the family that you've sacrificed for, and you're proud of how you've spent your time on this earth. And then before your eyes, it all comes undone. From the top to the bottom, your entire nation is destroyed. The holy city is sieged, blood is shed, the temple is destroyed, the king is gone. And the faithless have come and destroyed the sacred. And your family, bound in ropes and slavery, is taken away like cattle at the hands of foreign barbarians. You are left behind to witness the desolation of the holy land. You're too old to be taken away on the journey, too ineffective to be killed as a threat. The conquering barbarians consider you not worthy, worth the half coin that you'd fetch being sold as a slave. You're left alive and alone, a witness to the end. And everything that gives your life meaning is stripped under the mercy of the savage thugs and sold for a handful of coins on some godless slave market beyond the great desert. What happened to bring about this national holocaust? What happened to God's chosen people? Where is his holy protection? What, what will you do with the shattered pieces of your life? Where is hope? This is the beginning of the story of Daniel. As young Jewish slaves are delivered to serve a king who knows not the God that abandoned Israel. You can open your eyes now. Uh, I just want you to be able to, at the very least, imagine some of the struggles that, that the people were facing. Because it's not really set up in the book of Daniel. It Within the book, it just kind of starts off with, hey, here we are, we're, we're in Babylon, let's go forward from here. It doesn't really uh, describe the, 
the deep sense of despair uh, that happens, the, uh, the dark times, the, just how the nation got torn apart that leads into this. It, it's, the tone of Daniel uh, sets all of that aside, but literally every character involved in Daniel is well aware of that. And so everyone uh, who's deriving any kind of meaning from the book already has that in the back of their mind. So I think we need to kind of tuck that up in the back of our minds as, as we go into Daniel and start looking at it. So I just want to kind of ask you guys a couple of questions. As you imagine that, and just kind of imagine uh, yourself in that scene, either as a slave being bound up in, in these ropes um, or watching everything get pulled apart from you and, and taken off to wherever it might go, what kind of questions might be going through your mind at that time? I might ask where it went wrong. Yeah. Like what's, what, why, and, and why, why does this have to happen? Yeah. Where, where did it go wrong and why does this have to happen? Yeah. Why? <laughs> Where are you, God? Where are you, God? Yeah. It, it, once you get an answer to why, what do you think might be your next question? How, how, do, how am I supposed to react? Like, how am I supposed to react to your why? Like, if you tell me this is why something was done, now what? What's, yeah. what's, what am I supposed to do now? Yeah. It, so now that we understand why, uh, how should we react? How, yeah. Uh, what should we do now? Um, mm -hmm. um, here's a list of, of questions that I've just kind of been pondering as I've been thinking through this. Uh, how did this happen? Uh, what's currently going on? Uh, can we put things back? Uh, who's in charge now? Where is God in all of this? Uh, now what? Uh, where is our hope? And there's such an attitude of despair going on. Um, uh, in terms of what do we do now, do we resist the foreign occupation or do we submit to the new reality? Um, what does Yahweh want us to do? And is God's will even relevant anymore? I mean, we just saw foreign invaders backed by these foreign gods come in and just desecrate the, um, the holy city. Is our God even powerful anymore? Yeah, right. How, how am I supposed to understand God if, if, if the way I understood God before had, had a, things to do with his dominance or with a holy city or with him ruling uh, to the extent that someone has come in and, and left that desolate? Mm -hmm. How do I even understand God anymore? Yeah, yeah. How, how do I understand God's supremacy now? Yeah. Um, and and one, of the, one of the popular ideas that, that was going on uh, among religious folk at the time was that uh, different gods had different dominion in different parts of the earth. And so they would actually lay out boundary markers, not just associated with kingdoms and where kings would rule, but also where, where gods had dominion. And so as they lay down an Ebenezer stone was the term for those boundary markers, um, they would say, thus far the Lord is with us, which means we know that he is sovereign in the land up to this point. I don't know about beyond this point, but I do know that he's with us up to this point. So it's essentially them measuring out and saying, I know God has complete control up to this point. I don't know for certain beyond this, but I'm absolutely certain I, I've seen his faithfulness up to this point. Is that why they would make markers and things like as they um, trek to the to the promised land, like when, they, when you cross the river and, and all those type of things, would they 
Would that is that the same thing? If you think of it that way. Yeah, uh, as they were. Yeah. Yeah, as they were as they were uh, on their journey, even being delivered out of out of Egypt, they would they would set up monuments that uh, that were uh, attributing God's faithfulness and and His provision. They're there to remind future generations, this is what the Lord has done. Uh, with us at this point and and to remind each other that hey he is sovereign at this location um, we know that that this is what God did um, and it, they're remembrance uh, type stones is what they would do with that so that's kind of one of the big deals is okay if they're being carted off to Babylon well one we're we just saw the people who are being backed by Yahweh get uh, get overthrown, but now we're being pulled off into a foreign land. Is Yahweh even relevant here, um, or not? Oh right, because okay. Yeah, I, I mean, there's and there's even the question for the people who are left behind uh, in the Holy Land. They're also asking, hey, did did Yahweh just get eclipsed uh, by some foreign god? Is this now the top dog? Um, right. What's going on? Because it. The understanding was that the kings were more or less backed by uh, some kind of celestial power, and if the king of of uh, Judah had just got thrown down, then uh, is that because the god that backed him also got uh, got taken down in the heavenly realms? Um, so that's some of the thoughts that people are dealing with as as things are going on. So uh, before we jump into the exile. Uh, I want to answer some of the question of how did they get to this point? Um, you know, what went wrong? What, what began this whole downward spiral? Um, because we know from looking at it that God's allowing this to happen. Yeah. In hindsight, we, we, we know just, that... We know that there's a purpose in all of this and there's a reason behind it, but they don't know what living in it, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, they... they it, we in hindsight know uh, what's going on. I'm just kind of repeating for the tape a little bit, but yeah, we in hindsight know what uh, that what was going on, what happened, is because it was God's will. But that was something that they didn't know. There were a lot of different voices going on saying, "Hey, no, here's what's going on. No, here's what's going on," and just all kinds of different people saying, uh, "No, I, I am a prophet of God, and this is what's going on," and, and someone else. And so you had actually several different uh, folks all all stepping up and saying, "Hey." Thus saith the Lord, and we'll actually take a look at some of that tonight. Um, what were some of those different uh, voices? What were they advocating for? Um, but ultimately, what was it that God was saying? Hey, no, this is this is how it should be understood. This is what you guys need to do uh, going forward. So we'll look at uh, some of that discussion that that took place uh, throughout that. Um, so let me back it up to the last righteous king of Judah. Um, and you've got a timeline uh, that I gave you guys. It says the final years of the Judean monarchy. So I'll kind of follow along that a little bit. Um, the last righteous king of Judah was a man named Josiah. Um, let me get my... Okay. So Josiah's king. He's the, he's the one who found... Uh, the book of the law uh, in the ruins of the temple and, and helped to rebuild the temple and, and restore God's law and God's will uh, to the people. Uh, now, uh, the pharaoh of Egypt at the time was uh, Necho II, and he was wanting to go join his allies 
uh, the Assyrians in a fight against Babylon. And in order for him to do so, he would need to actually walk through the area of, uh, of Israel, uh, or of Judah at the time. Israel had already been uh, subjugated by Assyria, but Judah is still its own independent kingdom. And they're not too keen on foreign uh, uh, armies just walking through them. Uh, so Josiah said, no, uh, this is not going to happen. And uh, Pharaoh of Egypt says, uh, yes, it will happen. And so the two of them duke it out at the battle at uh, Medigo Plain. Uh, this is where armies gathered at Medigo. And I can see a smile on Ben Fust's face because this is going to become very relevant to his discussion later on. This is the, this is the Battle of Armageddon. This is 609 BC. That's when the end happens. <laughs> um, and the last righteous king of Judah is killed at that point. Uh, Pharaoh uh, Necho II continues on, joins his allies, the Assyrians. Um, they're able to fight off the Babylonians at that point. He returns, uh, turns around from Syria, heads back to Egypt on the way back. He uh, gets rid of uh, one of Josiah's sons and says, yeah, I know that, Israel, or that uh, Judah wants you as king, but I would prefer uh, Jehoiakim as king. So uh, Josiah's other son, Jehoiakim, his eldest son, by the way, is now crowned king of Judah. And from this point on, uh, Judah is ruled by kings who are appointed by foreign powers. Uh, Judah is no longer basically in charge of its own throne. Uh, the kings who sit on the throne of Judah are, are appointed by someone else. So this is Egypt saying, hey, I, I'm backing you as king. Uh, and so now uh, Jehoahaz, uh, the son of Josiah, uh, gets deposed. He's gone. He's been king for all of a couple of months. You know, he's had a good long reign, so... Um, is that part of the spoils of winning war? Yeah, when when you win a war, you get to dictate terms. Dictate terms, and who then rises to power? So, of yes. course, you're going to pick somebody that you want to work with. Yes. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. When I suppose that's scary. Yeah, Jehoahaz, I suppose, became king. If Josiah was a righteous king, you would assume it would be expected that Jehoahaz, right. been, ignoring the pattern of uh, no, the but like yeah, they're they're both the son. Uh, sons of uh, Josiah. It's right. just Jehoahaz was the younger son, and I'm not sure what went into choosing him as king, but apparently uh, Necho II of Egypt decided, no, I'd, I'd prefer Jehoiakim, because Jehoiakim seems to uh, go along a little bit better with me, agrees with my policy, and probably is willing to promise better tribute. Right. So, um, Do you think it's because he's like, well, hey, if he's going to make me king, <laughs> I'll say yeah. A, a lot of times that's the case. I mean, it, it, it's how imperialism worked even in the modern world. Is A lot of times in the Middle East, uh, you'll have a European power come in and say, let's see which tribal leader wants to join with us. All right, you guys are the ones in charge now. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, yeah, that's kind of the workings of politics and, and how that ends up being the case. So you'll see a lot of this rivalry between Egypt and, and Babylon going on. And um, in 605, uh, this is about three or four years later, uh, now Nebuchadnezzar, the uh, leader of Babylon, comes uh, tearing through the area. He ends up defeating Pharaoh of Egypt. And so this means that he's now the dominant uh, force in the area. And 
as such, he wants to then also take over some of the other kingdoms in the area um, and make sure that they're also subject and make sure that they know that who's in charge. And so he's now finds himself at Jerusalem knocking on this door saying, hey, you guys uh, need to recognize me as the authority in the area. Uh, he lays siege in Jerusalem. And this is where uh, a discussion uh, takes place uh, in the throne room in, in Judah. You've got Jeremiah the prophet who's standing before uh, the king of Judah. And he's saying, hey, this Nebuchadnezzar guy, this is the one that God's uh, backing. This is where we need to be. And then you've got other guys that are saying, no, 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 uh, king, uh, stay with stay with Egypt, uh, continue resisting, um, you know, the Lord is with us, that sort of thing. And, and so you've got a couple of different voices going on, and we'll actually take a look at, uh, take a look at one of those. Um, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Jeremiah 28. So Jeremiah 28. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, we're going to actually hit a lot of chapters tonight, so I'll be doing summaries instead of uh, just reading through all the text of these. So in Jeremiah 28, uh, we're introduced to this guy, Hananiah, who's a false prophet. Uh, he stands in the court of the king and more or less gives a, mo- a message that's opposing uh, what Jeremiah had just been given uh, to the previous king. Um, Jeremiah had uh, gone before the king wearing just this awkward uh, yoke o- over his uh, shoulders. And it's something that's entirely inappropriate to wear in the presence of royalty, but it, it was an object lesson. And he was trying to demonstrate to the king that, look, we're going to be subject to Babylon. And yes, I'm wearing a yoke because that's what's going to end up happening to us. We're going to have to submit to this because it's God's will. Um, and this has to do with the fact that as a people, we've been sinning against God and God has purposes in this. Um, so we just need to accept it and embrace that that's coming. Well, now you've got Hananiah coming along and saying, yeah, yeah, the, the yoke, and yes, Nebuchadnezzar just uh, was able to win a little bit, but we're going to resist him. Uh, we're going to fight against him, and we're going to be able to overthrow this yoke. And what Hananiah did was he actually took that yoke that uh, Jeremiah was wearing in the presence of the king, and he broke it as a way of kind of demonstrating that, you know, God's going to overthrow this thing. And he uses a lot of thus saith the Lord type of talk. And Jeremiah just very quietly, because, you know, he at this point doesn't have authority from God to dismiss Hananiah. Uh, He just says uh, in verse six, amen. Uh, May the, may the Lord do so. Uh, he's basically saying, hey, I, I would love for, to see this happen. It's just I don't have the authority at this point to agree or disagree with what you're saying. Well, fortunately, later on in the chapter, uh, God uh, brings a word to Jeremiah and says, uh, this guy had no idea what he's talking about. And by the way, he's also going to die next year. And so seven months later, uh, Hananiah is dead. Uh, 
And this is kind of God's way of saying that this guy really had no idea what he's talking about. He's, he's making things up and he's attributing them to me. And this is what happens when people start making things up and attributing it, it to God. Um, so it's one of those, you know, be very careful about what's going on. So fortunately, God stepped in and dealt with this guy who's trying to deceive them. But essentially, Hananiah is, is advocating a policy of let's resist Babylon. Let's uh, oppose these foreign invaders. Let's uh, cling to our own independence, that sort of thing. Um, and Jeremiah's instead trying to bring a message from God. And that brings us into Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29 has a lot of really cool things in it um, because it, it adds to that discussion of should we resist or should we embrace? And you, you kind of see both of these going on and God ends up advocating a third approach. It, it's, not a, it's not this uh, very conservative resist against uh, these pagans and their foreign policies and it's not a total liberal laissez-faire embrace the, the new way of life of, of Babylon. Instead, the instructions, as I would summarize them, is uh, bring life to these people. You are going to be in Babylon for a while. Bring life to them. Uh, you've been taught the ways of the Lord. Uh, so bring that to Babylon. Uh, bloom where you're planted is a way that a friend of mine would, would describe it. Is, look, you're going to be here for a little while. Uh, live life. Marry. Uh, give children in marriage, that sort of thing, uh, build houses, cultivate fields, live life in this land that you're going to be in for a while. And uh, this kind of culminates in Jeremiah 29, 11, uh, where uh, God gives a promise of prosperity to them, uh, which is one of these verses that, uh, that a lot of people end up mishandling. Uh, but I'll go ahead and read it. It says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord's. Plan for welfare, not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. So that already answers one of those questions of where is the hope? It, God's saying hope is coming. Um, but you have to understand that this is for people under a very specific set of circumstances. And this isn't exactly a universal instruction saying, hey, prosperity for everyone. It's for people who are specifically going through this. Uh, this is for, it's not for everyone, even though a lot of times it ends up being handled that way. This is for people who are wondering, uh, is life over? Is our nation over? Uh, is everything over? And, and God's saying, uh, no, I'm, I'm going to give you hope. I'm going to give you prosperity. I want to ask you something, though, at this point. As God is promising them prosperity, a lot of times uh, when we approach God uh, looking for some kind of hope, uh, what he has promised us is his presence. And what we often look for is prosperity. And, and they're both great. But one is by far better. By far better. Um, and a, a lot of times we end up kind of just overlooking the fact that God has promised his presence. And that he is going to walk with us through these things. That he is going to journey along with us. I, I kind of imagined in my own mind that what if God actually came and, and took human form and kind of walked along with them as they were carted away uh, across the desert and joined them in their sorrow and lived among his people at, as it was taking place. Um, but he, one way or another, he, his presence went with them. It, it's clearly there uh, in, the pres in the person of Daniel and, and what's going on. 
his presence is very much there. Uh, whether or not he actually took physical form and walked with them is kind of inconsequential. He's with them. Uh, that's what's important. And a lot of times we, f we ignore the fact that his presence is there, and that's such a significant thing because we're so focused on, uh, God, are you going to make my kingdom prosper? And, you know, it, that prosperity is inconsequential compared to his presence. But for these folks, uh, God offers both. He says, he says, not only am I going to give you my presence, but also I'm going to, I have plans for you to prosper. And then also in the same chapter, you have uh, a promise that even while you guys are, are in this land and you're living there, uh, the time of the exile is numbered at 70 years. Um, and you're going to find that in here and God will repeat it a couple of times, but uh, this is where he, he limits the, the number of years. This, this is not the end. Um, after 70 years, they can come back to the Holy Land and return to the fields that, that they once had. And then also at the end of this chapter, you see God deal with yet another false prophet named uh, Shemaiah, I think is, is how that's pronounced. Before we go on, sure. have we really answered why this happened? Is there something going on with, with King Josiah even though he was the last righteous king, is there something going on within the society that that God's just trying to eliminate by allowing this to happen? Yes, uh, God very much has a, a purpose in it. No, I haven't. I haven't quite answered what the the purpose is. So, uh, just taking a look at it, the clue that I'm going to start off with is uh, that Josiah had to. I mean, they they found. Uh, the book of the law. It had been lost. Um, so that's, right there is a, a big clue. It was lost among the ruins of the temple. So it was obviously not maintained and it was not well kept. And one of the patterns that, that you see in the history of, of both Israel and Judah is just kind of this downward spiral in terms of, of people uh, looking less and less to uh, the will of God and, and how is God doing things and looking more to how do I want to do things. And ever since uh, David and Solomon's dynasty, you just see this pattern uh, of kings uh, constantly moving society more towards their own will. And so uh, there's this tension between here's God's law and then here's the king's law. And the kings very much prefer doing things their own way. And so... Uh, by the time Josiah comes around, uh, they had completely forgotten about uh, the law that God had given to Moses by that point. And it's not until uh, someone starts going through the remains of the temple that they find this law. And uh, there's a, a time of renewal. Um, and, and he's the, the final king. But it, it, it's largely because of this downward spiral of people seeking their own agenda instead of uh, seeking God's agenda. Um, and so the, this time in exile helps to get people's attention back on God. Get, it's a, almost a type of purification um, in hindsight of, of looking at what ends up going on. And people are able to see how God ends up restoring and renewing uh, the Jewish people because of this time. Well, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting, too, to think that, that God doesn't, doesn't do that right at kind of the kind of the end of the spiral, that time of renewal, I suppose, allows to soak within their mind 
uh, the stories that surround the wall, like, like the exile from Egypt and, and those types of things, right? Do you get reacquainted with the Lord so that you may know him during the time of exile as opposed to if, you, if they were so bankrupt in that area, they wouldn't even have known the difference, which was uh, if the point was God to call them to repentance and restoration, um, they have to have that as a as a, a bedrock kind of thing. So it's interesting. To Otherwise, think, we'll just go be Babylonians. Uh, yeah, I mean, right. That's like that's not like a problem. Yeah, you yeah. know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, that, that that's a good point. That it's it's very much a mercy of God that he because of Josiah and and that this happened so recently, right before the exile, is that the uh, that the law is now kind of fresh on their minds, right as they're going into the exile. Um, so in addition to the words from the prophets that you have going on at the time, you also have uh, literally the words of the law that are kind of being carried along with them. And, and it's evidence that they, they actually had those uh, scriptures with them uh, when they were in, in captivity. Uh, later on, uh, there'll be a, an interesting altercation with, uh, with the king of Persia in which they're able to show some scrolls to him. And the king actually responds to that, and it's it's very cool how that one uh, shakes out. So, um, all right, no problem, no good question. All right, so that gets us into uh, tail end of twenty nine. Uh, God deals with yet another false prophet, uh, Shemaiah, um, and he just deals with him. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. So there, there's a lot of different voices, a lot of different charlatans uh, standing up saying, "Hey, here's what the Lord says," and so. To some extent, Jeremiah is uh, among many different voices going on, uh, and somehow the the king of Judah has to make a decision about what the Lord's will is. Uh, and fortunately, God, uh, through signs and and other demonstrations, is able to verify uh, what Jeremiah says is actually true. Um, and so some of the other guys obviously don't have that with them, and, and God's able to deal with them. So that leads us into uh, chapter 30, which is uh, a very cool song of restoration and redemption. And that helps to uh, let them know what's going on, what, what's going to be taking place. And then uh, moves into chapter 31, where you see uh, mourning turned into sadness. There, there's very much a, a you know, a feeling of sadness and despair. And so 31 is, is turning that into uh, rejoicing and saying how, look, the, the, this exile time, uh, it's going to end. Um, it, there will become uh, a, a, a time of jubilee where people will, will return home and uh, God will restore things. And, and it's very cool. Uh, I want to highlight in the, in the middle of this, as you're reading through it, um, he, he's talking about all these good things that are happening, sing and rejoice and gladness. And in kind of the middle of this, you have verse 15. It says, Thus saith the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. In the context, it, it very much sounds like... Um, uh, Rachel is one of the the mothers uh, of the various tribes of Israel, and in the context, it, it sounds like hey, some of these uh, some of these people of of Israel and Judah have just been taken out, and she's sad because her children have just been taken away from them, and the rest of the of the uh, section goes on to. Uh, describe hope and comfort and, and saying how children will come back to their own country in verse 17. 
So in just this immediate context and looking in terms of the exile and saying, hey, this verse is talking about how she's sad because her, her children are being taken away, but joy is coming because uh, the children will be returned. What's interesting is this particular verse ends up getting used by Matthew in chapter 2 of Matthew's gospel. Um, Matthew chapter 2 uh, says, uh, then was fulfilled what was spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah. Now, the way Matthew uses this very same verse is he's looking at it in context of Herod issuing a decree that all the children under age two would be killed in the region of Ramah, the, basically in, uh, in uh, Nazareth area, or in the Bethlehem area, sorry. Um, and Matthew sees that that verse is being fulfilled uh, later on in Jesus's time. So he's basically taken this thing entirely out of the context of the exile. And he's instead interpreting it in light of Jesus instead of in light of history. Um, so it, it's almost like, hey, here's this guy handling scripture very much with an agenda. Um, and so I'm kind of a, of a dual mind here on this. On, on one hand, he, he has an agenda. He seems very biased in terms of it. And, and I like his approach to interpreting scripture in, in light of Jesus, just because I like to interpret literally everything in life in, in light of Jesus. But if he's sitting in a room with, with rabbis, is that a fair thing to do? Is that the appropriate way to handle scripture? I, I would be inclined to say, uh, no, he's kind of being biased. He's demonstrating his bias and he's kind of lost his credibility, except for one huge thing. That's not the end of the chapter. So we read on to the end of the chapter and in uh, 31, God says, behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. That wasn't fulfilled at the end of the exile. He didn't create a new covenant. It, he even goes on to describe and compare this new covenant to the covenant before that he made with his forefathers that when they were brought out of Egypt. Um, that didn't take place. A covenant did take place, though, uh, on the night before Jesus was crucified when he instituted a new covenant uh, with his disciples. Then it did take place. And so in light of that, since the whole chapter as a whole didn't find its completion at the exile, uh, this other portion of it also points to Jesus. So you end up seeing that this prophecy needs to be handled in two ways. It finds fulfillment both in a historical setting in terms of the exile ending, but it also takes place uh, with Jesus coming in being the ultimate act of deliverance. So you end up finding that sometimes prophecy ends up being answered in terms of there is a short-term immediate consequence and a long and that sets up a long-term reality that needs to also be uh, addressed. Something even greater is going to take place. This new covenant is something that's even better than the release of the exiles. Well, because like in chat, right underneath this section that you're talking about that Matthew takes mm -hmm. into verse 16, this is what the Lord says, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for your work will be rewarded. Mm -hmm. So even though your children 
everything that has been passed along to them, even though they've been taken away, mm -hmm. the reward is coming. That speaks to me that, you know, they're going to go and do good work with it and, and turn it into joy and, and all of these things. Mm -hmm. Could Matthew have just been alluding to, um, instead of this specific, I mean, it's kind of one and the same, but maybe not, but broadly that... Um, look what happens when we lose sight and another king comes in and tries to to absorb oh. what's going on. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, that, that, that's a good question. To draw, to draw just back to the prophecy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, is, is Matthew, by using this, also kind of reminding the people that here's what, what happens when, when we ignore uh, the king that God has promised yeah. and, and in um, he's kind of reminding them that, hey, bad things happen when we ignore God, uh, what God tells us we should be doing and when we start, stop paying attention to uh, More of an example instead of a, mm -hmm. I don't know, a link or a passageway to Jesus or something. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, is he looking at this as, hey, I want to remind you guys of what happened back then? Um, and, and not necessarily saying that it's a fulfillment. Yeah. Um, I think the, he probably is wanting to remind them of, hey, bad things happen when we ignore God. But I am absolutely certain he also sees it as a fulfillment of the prophecy because he actually says so in, in oh, Matthew okay. 2.17. He says, this was, uh, then was fulfilled what was spoken of by the prophet. Um, so, it, you know, he, he very much sees that at least this very verse, if not uh, the end of the exile as a whole, the, the deliverance, the redemption that, that God has promised uh, finally comes in, in the person of Jesus. Um, so he, he sees that connection, but it, it kind of just uh, opens up the question of how do we handle prophecy just in general? And um, generally there, there's three kind of good approaches to uh, handling prophecy. One is um, God is giving us uh, uh, a word of prophecy to let us know what's coming up. Um, and it'll usually be fulfilled in just a single event, either short-term or long-term. But, you know, this is just saying, hey, this one thing is coming. Uh, but sometimes it'll be two things. Uh, and a lot of times uh, prophecy will, will be fulfilled in a short-term, uh, smaller picture, and then also in a long-term, bigger picture. And then sometimes prophecy is fulfilled in the sense that uh, what's being described is something that is just universal. Um, you know, God is saying, hey, if you're joining along with me, then you will have trouble with the world. That's just kind of universal among everyone who joins in God's program is we're going to end up living life in a way that is different than the pattern of the world. And there's going to be tension and friction. And that's just universal. Um, so sometimes there's a specific thing. Sometimes there's maybe two, usually one smaller that's kind of a picture of what the greater one is. And sometimes it's just uh, universal. And sometimes there's combinations of those. Um, but yeah, that kind of so sets up. It's a stretch. What's that? It's a stretch. It's, 
It's a stretch, and were it not for the fact that Jesus institutes a covenant and this chapter ends with uh, God promising a new covenant, I would actually kind of look at Matthew and say, hey, you are, you're kind of way out there in terms of how you're handling this verse. But because of the connection of the covenant, I, I think that uh, Jesus has legitimized uh, Matthew's understanding of this, not just this verse, but the whole section. Well, it kind of goes into... Um, them going into Nazareth. You know, after after Herod died, the angel of the Lord appeared and said from Egypt to go to Nazareth or whatever, and that that was where he grew up, but that wasn't really where he was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Am I see, am I maybe I'm getting too far deep into that and thinking that too much. It's it's that section of Matthew is interesting because it it does seem like um, there's a there's like a series of fulfilled prophecies yeah, that are fulfilled starts, deeper than uh, initially understood, right? Yeah. Like that applied to at one time also seems to apply to the life of Jesus. And I think it probably is a good, that particular section I think stretches us to be reminded that when they're referring back, like we, we do, we study in a way that says verses to verses, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. When they're thinking concepts to concepts. Mm-hmm. Um, so like they could they could make a reference back that has two verses back from the Old Testament, and really they're referring back to three chapters from our perspective. Mm-hmm. They're referring to broad stories of how of God's character or how people act or situations. Um, whereas for, for the cleanliness of analyzing things, I want to look back and say this ties to this, and we're done. Gotcha. And so I, I think I had the same reaction actually looking at Matthew as I thought this. Um, how can I how can I faithfully study the Bible? If you're allowed to just pull things out like that and say, right, no, this is really... Matthew's pulling stuff out, that, and I'm just like, uh, yeah, but it's in the Bible, so something. So like, so then it has. Then I have to ask the question: How can I understand that faithfully? Yeah. And I think the the way that I do that is recognizing that um, Matthew's calling back to to concepts, to broad stories, um, not just a specific like a line item prophecy. And there's a, one of the better examples for that is Jesus um, uh, on the cross when he's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm-hmm. And taking that as it sits on its own, um, it seems like he's, he's asking the question of why God has left him when it calls back to a psalm, which the whole concept of the psalm is, is David is feeling isolated and then God, God has never left him. Mm-hmm. And so like it's a reminder of, uh, of Jesus reminding him himself um, uh, of God's presence in that relationship and always being there. And we tend to miss that whole thing for lack of concept, because if you only go back to that particular part of the psalm where it says that, it's it's uh, it's despairing. Um, oh yeah. But if you read the whole psalm, the whole psalm, yeah, exactly. It's so, almost like it's sandwiched in the middle of the despair part, and it starts out here and goes to despair, and then it ends up yep. here, and you have to read the whole thing to get it. And the point okay. is to call us back to the the whole thing as opposed to just kind of that little area. And I think that's I think Dave's right. I think that's probably what's happening here is we're getting a little bit of that. Uh, that connection of uh, the covenant connection um, and that, that God is the same and, and we get the understanding of how he works in these circumstances even when we think things are not going the way we wish. Right, you have to you have to take read the whole thing and read the, the context and perspective so that you can understand it. That's right. Yeah, that's a good point. I just want to repeat it real quick for the for the tape. Um, a lot of times, the way that the New Testament writers will handle prophecy is that um, they'll 
they'll only write down just like one verse out of out of a larger story, and it's not that they're wanting you to only pay attention to that one verse. They they want the entire concept of that entire story. So um, even though they're just writing one or two lines uh, from the Old Testament. Uh, in their own mind and, and in the minds of the of their readers, uh, they're thinking about uh, an entire story, and they're wanting to make sure that you're getting the concept of of what that story is telling, and not just you know what's the nitpicky details uh, of that one or two lines, and looking at that as being fulfilled, but they're looking at what's the entire concept of the story, that all those profit promises are being fulfilled. And that, it, it, that's a heavy thing. It brings with, like, when people say, give me liberty or give me death, it's not just reminding us that a guy named Patrick Henry said that, right? There's a whole emotion that's tied to, that it was, it was revolutionary things. It was broad concepts, big ideals. Like, all that gets poured into that one phrase, not just, like, the historical remnant of that story. But there again, the audience here is going to understand. Yeah. yeah. We have to fight for that more than we they We have to fight, yeah, because you... We don't know. We, go back we don't know anyway. The people that heard him say the whole, you know what I mean, are going to yeah. know. Oh yeah, he said that that one time in the middle of the speech, and oh yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay, yep. that makes sense to me. So I, I also want to touch on just the the way that uh, uh, some of these dual natured prophecies, uh, when you'll have a the prophecy being fulfilled in a small picture, and then also again in the, the larger picture. Um, a lot of times it'll be, hey, here's, here's how it's being fulfilled, uh, but then later on it's actually being taken to the next level. So in this case, uh, you have people who are enslaved uh, largely because of their own sin. Uh, they've been separated from God because they've been following their own agenda. Uh, they're in a, a state of slavery, and God is going to deliver them. And so that ends up getting fulfilled within 70 years of their lifetime. But it will also be fulfilled. God will uh, bring them uh, a deliverance for all sin and for the entire world. So he's basically taken that same concept of deliverance and he's uh, cranked it up to the next level and saying, hey, here we are, not just in a small way for one small nation, but we're going to do the whole, the same thing in a big way uh, for, for everyone. Um, and so a lot of times these prophecies end up fu- being fulfilled um, both in a small way so that you can get a, a very tangible picture of what's going to be coming in a, in a larger and even bigger way. And that's kind of what Matthew is, is seeing here is that, yeah, we were able to come back from the exile. And yes, uh, God brought us prosperity and he brought us deliverance. But in as much as God brought us prosperity and deliverance uh, at the end of that exile, through Jesus, he is bringing us even greater prosperity and even greater uh, deliverance. Um, and yeah, it, it was followed by tension. Of prophe- mm-hmm. There are a lot of uh, the prophecies then that feed into that right there as mm-hmm. just an example yeah. of, look at this thing, and that was huge. But mm-hmm. I'm telling you, what's coming is going to blow this out of the water. That's just going to make this look like nothing. I love and, that as the filter. How does Jesus amp it up? Anytime you see like a dual prophecy, like yes. how can I understand what did Jesus do that was bigger or mm-hmm. macro or like whatever, yeah. like even even the concept of understanding the law, same principle, right? Like that Because was it blows our mind that he's just fulfilling this prophecy, but let me tell you what. Yeah. This is now, this is now coming. How do you think it up? I love it. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. So that uh, basically takes care of the, what I wanted to cover in terms of Jeremiah, just sort of setting the groundwork and, and some of the issues that were leading into this, uh, this time of captivity. Um, 
Tonight, I don't really want to go through some of the really familiar stories of, of Daniel. We'll, we'll walk through those in, in the next couple of weeks. But uh, I do also want to, uh, continuing on in our theme of, of piecing together history, I want to look at uh, what happens after Daniel. And um, I want to actually use Daniel a little bit as the guide, just because uh, about half of his book is devoted to um, looking at this time, uh, this period of time between where he is and this coming of an eternal kingdom. So in your handout, if you flip it over to the other side, um, you end up seeing uh, a timeline of what goes on uh, from the essentially the end of the exile on up to, uh, uh, well, the completion of, of the prophecies that are laid out for Daniel. And he, he's letting them know, hey, an eternal kingdom is coming. And what's neat is that uh, all these prophecies really have a purpose hearkening back to the questions that we were asking. Um, who's in charge now? Uh, that's one of the big questions. Uh, obviously, where is hope is going to be answered in terms of who is in charge. Um, and what's going on is also going to be, uh, be filtered essentially through who is the new king. Um, they've just lost the king of, his, of uh, Judah. And so, you know, obviously, you've got some puppet guy sitting on the throne, and he'll only be there for about another 10 years before Nebuchadnezzar finally just gets so tired of all these revolts and rebellions that he just comes in and just wipes out Jerusalem. I mean, completely obliterates Jerusalem, destroys the temple entirely. But the first time he comes through, uh, all he does is he just uh, pillages the area, uh, runs off with all the royalty, uh, swipes everything he can from the uh, from the temple because there's a lot of really cool gold things hanging on in there, and also demands a tribute from uh, whoever it is that he leaves sitting on the throne. Um, so now you've got Daniel uh, being taken off into captivity. He, along with a couple other, well, basically most of the royal household of David, uh, all getting pulled off. Uh, they're in a foreign land now, um, and he's being given some visions uh, about things to come. Um, and I want to deal with those visions in just a little bit, but first I want to walk through the history, and then we'll look back to the visions and see how uh, a lot of these find their fulfillment in history. So uh, looking again at the, the years from exile to the eternal kingdom, um, so just for quick reverence, uh, it was 605 BC, that's when Nebuchadnezzar came and, and initially took uh, everything, and Daniel was probably among uh, the, the things and the people that God, or that uh, Nebuchadnezzar took. Um, he leaves behind a, uh, uh, I believe it was Zedekiah who was king at the time. It, most of the kings don't end up staying on the throne for very long just because there's always this ongoing uh, back and forth between Egypt and, and Babylon here. Um, but finally, in, uh, in 589, uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes in, uh, besieges Jerusalem yet again, and then uh, just a couple of years later, he comes and um, after having put down that revolt, uh, Nebuchadnezzar just destroys the temple. He's done with it. We're, you know, he, we're tired of this. Uh, ends up kidnapping King Zedekiah, um, and you find a, a reference to the to this, kind of verifying what's going on in Jeremiah 34, Jeremiah 37, 39, 52, uh, 2 Kings 25, 2 Chronicles 36, Ezekiel 34. I mean, just a lot of different places you're going to find uh, this story 
all being described because they're all taking place at about the same time. Um, eventually, was, was yeah. Ezekiel, was Jeremiah part of being taken taken hostage? No, uh, Jeremiah was there at the time. He, he was witnessing uh, the events that was taking place. But Jeremiah was left behind in the, in the Holy Land. Uh, Ezekiel also uh, took place in the, the same time period. So think of it as kind of three prophets all going on at about the same time. You've got uh, Daniel, you've got Ezekiel, and then uh, you've also got Jeremiah. And they're not all in the same place. They're, correct. They're not all in the same place. Uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel are back in the Holy Land. Daniel is over in Babylon. Okay. And so you've got actually different messages going out to different kings um, so that God's uh, word can be delivered to the kings faithfully, okay. uh, which is important because if God's going to judge them, then uh, he gives them every opportunity to do the right thing. And so he makes sure that they have heard uh, a word from him before before he uh, goes one way or the other. Does the fact that multiple sources are coming with the same information bear bear fruit then? Um, yeah, you've got multiple sources. They're all kind of saying the same sort of thing. Though they tend to be saying it to different people. Um, like uh, oh. Jeremiah, Jeremiah stayed in, in Judah. Ezekiel, I believe, was kind of more in the northern region. Um, and then you've also got Jonah at the same time going to the king of Assyria saying, hey, uh, and Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, and saying, hey, uh, same sort of thing, uh, repent. Um, which in the context almost sounds like repent, go join with Babylon. Um, yeah, instead right. of instead that of fighting Jonah against, saying like real weird, right? Yeah, right. This God is all all powerful. Uh, by the way, His people just got taken away. You should repent, and, and nonetheless, yeah, <laughs> I, Jonah's bold. Yeah, I mean, well, no wonder he didn't want to go. Yeah, right, <laughs> yeah. right. Like, are you kidding? I got nothing to back this up. Yeah. Like yeah. all the people got taken away. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So all these stories are taking place, and and what kind of initiates all of these is um, Nebuchadnezzar comes back and he tries a, a second round with Egypt, and he actually fails. Uh, this time Egypt uh, gets the better of him, and because uh, because uh, Nebuchadnezzar walked away, uh, tail tucked between his legs, all the different uh, regional kings that were previously subject to Nebuchadnezzar all figure, hey, this is the opportunity. Let's, uh, let's rebel. Let's see if we can get our independence, and maybe we can cut a better deal being backed by Egypt. And so you've got uh, rebellion in, in Judea, you've got rebellion in uh, uh, the northern tribes, you've got rebellion in Assyria, and they all figure, hey, this is our time, let's throw off the yoke. And you've got a word from the Lord saying, no, this is not your time, don't throw off the yoke. And uh, uh, you know, you've got kings that are not, uh, not following God's word. Um, and then you've got kings that are. Uh, in Assyria, they, they repent. <laughs> um, and they end up joining with uh, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, uh, with his program. So, um, 70 years after uh, the initial exile, uh, Cyrus is now in charge. Um, we've kind of skipped a little bit that takes place within the story of Babylon um, and in the story of, of Daniel. Uh, eventually, Persia comes along and now uh, Cyrus the Great is in charge. He's the new emperor. Um, though 
Daniel doesn't talk a lot about Cyrus, um, partly because Daniel is hanging out in Babylon. He's not looking at it from a large uh, world map big picture. He's looking at, hey, just here's what's going on in the immediate area. And for him, he's dealing with uh, a king named uh, Darius, uh, who is likely to be a historical figure known as uh, uh, Gurabu or something to that effect. Um, it's it's really kind of hard uh, tracking down who is this Darius the Mede just because there aren't really any external uh, sources for this. Um, history doesn't reco- uh, record that. What history does record is who the top dog is, and that's uh, Cyrus. Um, so as far as some of these other guys, it's like, uh, all right, I'm not sure who you're talking about, Daniel. Um, and so it, it's left open a little bit of a room for skeptics to be saying, well, maybe Daniel just made things up or got confused because there will be a Darius later on. Uh, but it's very much not this Darius. Um, so most likely uh, this is a king appointed by Cyrus uh, to rule in the region of Babylon. And then that king uh, ends up appointing uh, other kings later on. Uh, but Cyrus, the uh, king of kings, the emperor uh, of Persia, and, and you have to understand, uh, there's a lot of new things going on politically. Uh, prior to this, you have kings, and then you'd have kings that would be somewhat subject to other kings, but you never really had a full-blown empire to the scale of what uh, what Nebuchadnezzar was able to pull together. Uh, so you almost have new vocabulary being invented uh, just because, like, in Hebrew, you don't have a word for emperor. They had to start using phrases like king of kings um, in order to try and describe this new reality of what's going on. And so... Um, Daniel will, you know, call someone a king, even though they were really just uh, someone who was an appointed ruler on behalf of uh, someone bigger in the, uh, in the chain. So Cyrus ends up uh, returning the exiles in 536. And this is actually, this is very cool because it's in response to uh, the Jewish leaders coming to Cyrus and showing him a copy of the scroll of Isaiah from 300 or so years before uh, think that's about right. Uh, I forget exactly how many years before, but uh, Isaiah wrote several generations before Cyrus. And in Isaiah 44, uh, starting with verse 41, I'm going to turn to that really quick and, and just, and it continues on in 45. The, these two really kind of form together uh, a single, a single thought and a single prophecy. Um, I'm going to skip on to uh, 44, verse 24. It says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and, the, and makes fools of diviners. Did, by the way, did God frustrate the signs of uh, the fools and the liars, the people who came in saying, thus saith the Lord, that weren't from him. Yeah, he did that. Mm-hmm. That We just saw confirmation of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, verse 26, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers. Um, that's the word for messengers is also word for angels, by the way. Who says of Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. Up until this point, Jerusalem's been continuously inhabited. So why would that be even relevant? Think about that for a second. And of the cities of Judea, they shall be built. And I will rise up their ruins. 
Now think about that in, in the context of Isaiah's time where you know, the city of Jerusalem's been inhabited. Why would it need to be raised up from ruins? Who says of the deep, be dry, and I will dry up, and I will dry up your rivers. And who says of, and here's the name, Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Now, there's a couple implications going on there. Uh, why would the temple need to be built? In Isaiah's day, the temple was built. It was established. <laughs> well, it ends up getting destroyed. And Cyrus ends up uh, opening up the treasury and saying, hey, I'm going to pay for this thing to be rebuilt. So continuing on in, in chapter 24, thus says the Lord to his anointed. That word anointed is also the word for Messiah. So let me read it another way. Thus says the Lord to his Messiah, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belt of kings, to open the doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you, level the exalted places. I will break in the pieces of the doors of bronze and will cut through the iron bars. I will give you the treasure of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. God just dropped a, a giant prophecy about an entirely pagan king. Cyrus really had no history uh, with Yahweh, as far as anyone can tell. This is several hundred years beforehand. And not only does God say that this guy is going to be an instrument of restoring Israel, but he actually uses the phrase Messiah to describe Cyrus. Now, he's not the only person in the Bible who is appropriately called a Messiah. Um, David was also anointed. Um, Saul was anointed. Um, it's a way of saying that this person is going to be an instrument to act on behalf of God. Uh, a common English term that we might use is commissioned. Someone who is working with authority and with the agency on behalf of, of a group or an organization. In this case, it is God saying, I am investing in this person and they're going to do my will. They're going to uh, be my servant. They're going to accomplish my purposes here on earth. And in this case, that's the case for Cyrus. So this term uh, uh, Messiah or Christ uh, is not unique to Jesus, which is kind of a scary thing. It, it's one of those, all right, how do we handle that exactly? That blows Josh's mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I want to kind of point you back to what we, what we said before about prophecy, about a lot of times it will be fulfilled in a small setting on a small scale so that you get a picture of what a bigger scale and what a bigger setting. Basically, Jesus has a way of taking, uh, taking a concept and just cranking it up to level 11 and saying, here's what's really going on. So, so, if, Cy so if Cyrus is anointed, mm -hmm. well then... And yeah. look how God is using him. And look how God's using him. Yeah. A pagan. Yeah. In, in, in the same way that God can use a pagan uh, to accomplish his purposes, is if he can do uh, so much with so little, think about how much more God can accomplish with someone so much greater uh, in the person of Jesus. Yeah. So basically, in as awesome as, as David was as a Messiah, and as awesome as Cyrus was delivering the, the people out of exile, uh, being an agent of deliverance for, for God, um, Jesus just cranks it up even better. Um, so, 
All right, so that's uh, Cyrus, and that's the end of the exile. That, that fulfills the prophecy that Jeremiah spoke, uh, saying 70 years is, is going to be the, your time of exile. And uh, for the most part, that kind of concludes at least the, the events that you find in Daniel. But it doesn't uh, conclude the, the visions and the, hey, here's what's coming down the pipes uh, of Daniel. And uh, a lot of the visionary messages are to answer the question of, uh, here's who the, who's who the uh, power players are going to be from now on. Um, up until then, their allegiance has been to the king of either Israel or Judah, I guess depending on where you were, and God was working through these people. So now that those, uh, those throne rooms have, have been reduced, uh, now who do we look to for leadership? Um, and he kind of answers this, this question in, in terms of the visions. And so I'm going to kind of look through history, go through some of the events, and highlight some of these empires. So after Babylon, uh, Persia takes over. And Persia initially was uh, a subject kingdom of the, the Medes. The Medes were actually the power player um, after the Assyrians. And the Medes were able to take over the Assyrians. And it's like, hey, we are now the, the dominant force in the area. Um, and so in terms of uh, Babylon, as they're looking around and thinking, hey, we were able to take over Syria, we are able to take over um, uh, Judah, and we are able to have a couple of skirmishes with, uh, uh, with Egypt for a time here and there. Um, the real threat kind of came from uh, the Medes. And Persia was really just kind of backwater yokels uh, in terms of what's going on. But at one point, uh, Persia ends up joining along with the Medes and saying, hey, let's get together, you, you and I. And, you know, you guys, you Medes, you're obviously the powerful uh, group here. Uh, but let's try and take uh, Babylon down a peg. And so that's exactly what they do. And they're successful. Uh, not only are they successful, um, Persia ends up becoming the stronger of this partnership. Uh, which is very unusual. Um, usually that's like an outright rebellion type of thing. But it, it's just because of the Persian leadership, uh, they end up eclipsing the, the Medes. And uh, so then they're kind of the ones who are calling the shots. And, and Cyrus was that, that first uh, big-time Persian, uh, Persian leader. Uh, after Cyrus, then you also have uh, Darius, um, not the same Darius that's mentioned in, in Daniel. This is a Darius later. Um, Darius, a Persian, um, who basically repeats Cyrus's decree saying, yeah, uh, you know, exiles go home, that sort of thing. Then you've got a third decree, and, and I'm highlighting these decrees because they become important in, in uh, Daniel chapter 9. We'll take a look at that in, in a little bit. Um, you have a de decree from Artaxerxes, uh, the Persian, and in this decree, he tells, uh, he tells them to go rebuild uh, the temple in Jerusalem and go re restore the city. And you can find the exact text of that in Ezra 7, and all the rest of Ezra is written in Hebrew except for that one decree. It, it's left in its original language in Aramaic which is the, the language of Babylon at the time. Um, and it's because it, it's such a significant decree. It's an important one. Um, and that begins uh, a period of, 
what I'm going to call the the 490 years or the 77s. Uh, we'll take a look at it, and it begins with that decree. But then there's a fourth decree uh, later on. Artaxerxes goes and uh, kind of amends his his initial decree and says, uh, we also need to make sure we've got walls in place for this city. Uh, in in uh, that's in Nehemiah six. So there's kind of four decrees. One is Cyrus sends the exiles home. Darius kind of repeats that. Artaxerxes then uh, says, no, go rebuild the temple, which gives a lot of authority. He gives unlimited budget for that to take place. He also gives... Ezra authority to enact the laws of the temple. In other words, you can write your own laws. You can also collect taxes. And based on those two principles, uh, you now have a kingdom of Israel again because of those. So essentially the, the commonwealth of Israel gets restored because of that decree. And then it finds its fulfillment um, roughly 50 years later uh, in 408 BC, uh, the nation of Israel is finally established. Um, and so that, that decree from Artaxerxes, as he says, uh, go out and re- restore the, the kingdom, um, it ends up finding its fulfillment in, in 409. And that's the first part uh, of a sequence of uh, 490 years. Um, and then uh, we'll get into the, we'll just keep going on. Um, all right, in 334 BC, uh, a new player uh, enters the scene. Uh, Persia's been trying to expand westward. Uh, they get into a lot of trouble with Greek city-states, uh, including like Sparta and Athens and whatnot. Uh, he keeps getting thwarted. And eventually, um, there's a, a Greek who's able to uh, unite the Greek city-states, Philip of Macedonia. Uh, and then his son is able to take those united uh, Greek city-states and head eastward, and his son is known as Alexander the Great, and he's able to, in 11 years, take over the entire Persian Empire, just top to bottom. He, he's got the whole thing, and it, it's an impressively fast uh, uh, conquest. He's able to head all the way down to Egypt, take over Egypt, head over to Babylon, takes over Babylon, heads into, into Persia, gets all the way over to India. Um, I mean, he, just the traveling alone is impressive, but he just conquest after conquest after conquest, and it, it is fast. Um, but just as quickly as he's able to take over the land, um, after he dies, uh, that entire empire ends up getting split up four ways among his four generals. Uh, two of them end up splitting up the Greek city-states themselves, and then two end up uh, splitting up the former Persian Empire. Uh, the one of them, the Ptolemies, uh, take over Egypt, and the other one uh, ends up in the hands of the Seleucids. And the Seleucids take over most of uh, the Persian area, uh, Asia Minor, Assyria, and Palestine. And the Seleucids um, are more or less the reigning authority in the Holy Land area, although it's kind of in this tension going on between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. Um, and later on in Daniel, you're going to see, find a prophecy about them, about the northern kingdom versus the southern kingdom. And that's essentially the Seleucids versus the, versus the Ptolemies, the Egypt versus the, um, the Syrian uh, Seleucid kingdom. That, that's a direct result of the split of Alexander the Great's empire among his generals. That's, yeah. That, that's where that 
uh, distinction happens. Yeah, the, it's split four ways, two to the north and two to the south. Yeah, it, it's split four ways. Two of them are more or less irrelevant to people in the Holy Land. That's the that's the two generals that are over in in uh, Greece. They, they split up the different Greek st- city states. But the two that are relevant uh, to them are the uh, ones in the north, and that's the Seleucids. Ones in the south, and that's the Ptolemies. And the Ptolemies uh, run Egypt. And the Seleucids run more or less the rest of uh, of uh, Alexander the Great's empire, and so there's kind of this uh, conquest going on between them as they try to define boundaries, and right between Syria and and Egypt you find the Holy Land, and so there's this kind of back and forth going on between the two, and at one point uh, the the leader of the Seleucids is, is a man known as Antiochus Epiphanes. He's Antiochus the fourth. And Epiphanes means the illustrious or the great. He he launches a campaign to try and uh, take over Egypt, and Egypt is able to thwart him, um, and he's upset, and so he heads back to uh, his his hometown. And on his way back, the uh, he's upset at the Jews, and so he ends up getting involved in Jewish politics, and especially in terms of the temple. He finds uh, support from uh, Jews that really like just Greek culture. It's known as Hellenistic culture. And so he ends up backing them and so heads over to Jerusalem and says, hey, let's uh, make sure that the, uh, the Hellenistic Jews are now in charge. And so what he does is he goes into the temple and he sets up an idol to Zeus and he takes a pig in along with him and throws a pig on the altar. It's about the least kosher animal to exist, and he throws it on the altar of the Lord. And he takes a golden image of Zeus and erects it in the temple that says, no idols whatsoever. This is a huge event. It's in 168 BC, or probably on about June 1st. Is when he occurs. Is when this occurs, and Daniel will refer to this as a desecration of the temple. And I say a desecration of the temple because Daniel mentions multiple desecrations of the temple, multiple abominations that cause desecration. So when Jesus speaks of a future event, there will also be a future event. So you're going to have one in the past. You're also going to have one in the future. So this is after they've gone home. Yeah, this is after they've gone home. Well after the exile. Um, Cyrus has helped to rebuild the temple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've, they've got a whole new temple. They've got a, a Jewish uh, state going. Uh, and the, the kings of, of Judah, or whoever it is that's running the show in Judah at the time, they're very much subject to, uh, first off, the Persians. And then they'll be subject to Alexander the Great when he comes along. And luckily they know what's coming because of the prophecies in, in Daniel. They will know who's going to be in charge and they basically know the outcome of all the major conflicts. So they're able to pick the right side each time. Um, and so in this tension between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, they more or less know what's going to happen because God spells it out in Daniel chapter 11. Um, and so they also know that a desecration that causes abomination is about to be coming down. And this is uh, uh, 163 BC. This is roughly 200 years before Christ's ministry. Um, 
you have a guy come in and because of the way that he treats the temple, the conservatives in Jewish society uh, are say, hey, this is our line in the sand. And uh, a family known as the Maccabees uh, just rise up against him and, and they just challenge his authority. And it takes three years uh, for them to fight it out. But eventually they're able to uh, take over Jerusalem and um, establish dominance in the, of the temple. And they're able to consecrate the temple again. Um, it takes about three and a half years for them to pull it off. And on December 25th, Judas Maccabeus purifies the temple in instituting the Feast of Dedication, uh, also known as Hanukkah or the Festival of Lights. This is something that Jews even today uh, celebrate. And the reason is because uh, they've just won a, a war of independence. Uh, prior to this, they'd been subject to uh, Persians, to Greeks, to Seleucids, and now they're finally free. Uh, for the first time in a long time in their history, they can pick their own monarch. And it lasts for about 100 years, and then they're no longer free again. Um, but that, that's jumping ahead. The days of this are, are actually pretty interesting and, and pretty significant. The time between the desecration of the temple and uh, and Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights, is 1,290 days. It's roughly uh, three and a half years plus one month. Um, and then the time, it's only 45 days after that that Antiochus Epiphanes uh, ends up dying. So that's a total of 1,335 days. The, those numbers are going to pop up in Daniel. He will literally count the days and let them know exactly what's going on um, in uh, Daniel chapter 12 and and. So we'll be able to see some of that. Um, so jumping ahead of it in about another 200 years, uh, now Rome's in charge. And, and Rome was actually invited, by the way. Uh, there was internal disputes between Jews going on, and they said, hey, Rome, can you come settle this? And Rome said, yeah, we'll settle this. <laughs> and so Rome came in, and they never left. Um, so Rome has basically been deciding, yeah, Herod's need to be sitting on the throne, and so that's what ended up happening. Um, 26 A.D., uh, we're now at 483 years after uh, the decree from Artaxerxes. Uh, so 69 of these sevens have been completed. Jesus' ministry begins in 26 AD. Um, this is because the, the calendar's off just a little bit. Jesus was actually born uh, like four years or so before, uh, before that 0 AD or 0 BC mark. Um, so he's about 30 years old. His ministry begins. And then three years later, uh, Jesus is crucified. Uh, he ascends. This is a halfway point of a final uh, set of seven years that's part of uh, an important prophecy. And then three years after that um, is the completion of a timeline that God sets out in, in Daniel. Um, the timeline basically says, hey, there's 490 years, and he breaks down uh, those 490 years in terms of here's events that are going to be taking place. Um, and the final completion of it is actually three years after Jesus is gone, which is kind of surprising. You would expect Jesus to be the ultimate completion of the prophecy, but it turns out that he's kind of there. Um, but what ends up happening uh, at that 70-year mark is... Uh, or the 77's now completed, it's three years after Jesus is gone, um, the
the apostles have been hanging out in Jerusalem and have been ministering and following in uh, in Jesus's way, and they've been speaking to the other Jewish people about what's going on. And at the three-year mark, this is when the persecution begins, and Stephen is killed. And at this point, this movement of Jesus now uh, departs uh, from the people of Israel. Um, the rest of Israel ends up going a whole different direction. It's no longer uh, a part, either subject or anything like that. He's no longer advocating for, hey, can he take over the, the Jewish throne? Now this kingdom that Jesus has set up becomes an independent thing, largely because the Jewish state has declared war on them. Um, they, you know, a persecution has arisen. They've dis- decided that all the followers of the way are heretics. And so the world essentially declared war on the kingdom of God. So the followers of Jesus uh, actually end up leaving Jerusalem, which causes God's kingdom to spread, um, which is very cool because this is God's way of launching an invasion. Uh, so the world declares war on God's kingdom, and so God sends his people out, and this is an invasion into the world. And that's the completion of, of these 70 years and uh, the beginning of uh, this eternal kingdom. Um, and this is the point at which you see the eternal kingdom is very much separate from the previous history of Israel, is when that persecution begins. Uh, and then a little bit later, you've got uh, Titus of Rome uh, who comes in and he just destroys Jerusalem. That'll also be mentioned uh, in Daniel. All right. Uh, I need a time check just to see how far over I am. 7.58. It's 8 o'clock right now. Okay. Um, let's see how quickly I can go through some of these <laughs> prophecies. Or What kind of time do you guys have? A little bit. You have a little bit of time? Okay. I bet I can hit these in... Uh, in probably about 20 minutes. Will that work for you guys? Yeah. All right. So Daniel chapter 2, I just want to look at the the vision that's in it. Uh, and I'll, I'll just talk through it. You're, you're welcome to look, look into it if you want. Uh, but Nebuchadnezzar is troubled with a vision, and it's essentially a vision of things to come. And this vision that he sees outlines the sequence of events, more or less, that I just described. Um, but it's going to be th- from, uh, to some extent, it's going to be from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective and through his interpretation a little bit. Um, but he won't quite understand what's going on. Um, but his vision is he sees this giant statue uh, of a human, and my guess is it probably resembles him in a lot of ways. And the head is of gold. And Daniel comes along and he interprets it uh, for Nebuchadnezzar because he's disturbed. And he says, hey, that head of gold, it, it represents you in this empire that you've been able to put together. And following up that one, there will be another empire uh, that will expand what you've done. Um, now, it won't be quite as pure, so you'll notice a degradation in metal. Uh, initially, the head is made of gold, but then the next portion of this statue is the chest made of silver, and so it, it's a little bit lesser quality, but now our statue is bigger. And that's, that's the Persians coming along, the, the Persian and the Medes, as they come into the picture. Then you have a, a belly made a, of bronze, and then you have legs of, uh, of iron and feet of iron and clay. And it's essentially lining out a sequence of empires 
starting with the, the Babylonian Empire as the head, which represents all that purity of Nebuchadnezzar's ideal, and realize that it's kind of this is how Nebuchadnezzar is seeing himself and seeing history being played out as God's explaining it to him, and seeing how these other nations are going to be following in that same sort of pattern um, of how he was able to rule the world. There, there weren't really empires prior to him, and so they end up learning how to be empires because of the pattern that he set up. Um, so that chest of, of silver, that's the, the Persians and the, uh, the Medes. Then the belly of bronze is the, um, is the Greeks. Uh, then, of course, it gets split up. Um, and then you finally have the Romans coming along, and uh, they're represented as the iron. Um, it's a very strong metal. It's a very practical metal, uh, but it's certainly not in any ways a noble uh, type of metal. Um, and that basically outlines the pattern of, of who's in charge uh, for, for the next 500 years. And then something happens. The statue ends up getting destroyed because a boulder, uh, just this giant rock, this thing of, of immense magnitude comes and it just crushes the thing. And that boulder, it doesn't end with the boulder. The boulder grows into a mountain, a place where people can live. Um, it's interesting that Josephus was interpreting uh, Daniel for the Romans. And when he got to this, he omitted the part about the boulder because he knew that uh, to do so would be treasonous. He, his understanding of it was that the, the legs of iron was the last link in the chain. And if he starts mentioning this thing about a boulder coming to destroy it, then he knew the Romans would figure um, this prophecy goes on to say that uh, something's going to destroy this uh, statue and therefore destroy the Roman Empire. And so he intentionally omitted that part because he knew that if he puts it in there, uh, it would be his head. Um, and so he, you know, it's like, I'm not going to mention that. The Romans will have my hide for that. So as he described it to the Romans, it's like, hey, here's this great statue. You guys are just the latest part of it. And it would seem the, the, fa the final part in this uh, sequence of empires stretching all the way back to, to Nebuchadnezzar the Great. Um, so as we look at it, uh, it's pretty clear that the boulder is Jesus. Um, and then the mountain that follows is the kingdom that Jesus has come to establish. So he comes and he ends up destroying the world's way of managing, the, uh, of managing people and instead saying, here is a new kingdom. So all these worldly powers are exemplified and embodied in that statue um, and all the sequences in the statue. And here comes this boulder and saying, nope, we're going to do things God's way. And from that point on... Uh, the mountain is an eternal kingdom. No, nothing shakes it. Um, it's there forever. So you no longer have this sequence of uh, one king leading into another king leading into another king. You never, no longer have a time of turmoil where you're like, we've got this giant pa power vacuum and we have no idea what's going on. It, you will always know who's in charge from that point on. Are the Greeks bronze? Yeah, the Greeks were bronze. And the then Roman the Romans were, were the iron, yeah. And clay. Yeah, I'm I'm a I little fuzzy. Um, baked clay. Yeah, is ceramic would be the uh, would be what that clay is. Um, I'm a little fuzzy on that. 
the exact details of it. Um, I'm looking at a lot of these, kind of digesting it all together. Um, I'm going to skip the vision in chapter 4 for now. I want to leave that one to the end. So I'm going to go on to the vision in chapter 7. So we're now already about halfway through the book of Daniel. The other stories are very cool. We'll get to them next week. Uh, Daniel chapter 7 is one of the times in which uh, Jesus very much shows up. So I love this. Uh, I love this story. But it starts off, um, actually, Daniel is kind of in the heavenly realms, in the throne room of God. And he's able to see uh, these beasts. Um, and it starts off with um, a beast that is, uh, oh, let me pull it up here. Uh, this one's a good one. Daniel 7. Um, the first beast. There's uh, friends of Daniel too. There's significance between like the specific items, like mm-hmm. something specific with gold and Persia, like something like that. Like there's a direct tie to it. Yeah, there is a direct link between the the various metals involved in the statue and their significance within within the cultures that they represent. Uh, obviously, gold was very ideal, and and in fact, Nebuchadnezzar, when he set up a statue of himself, he set up a golden statue, ninety foot tall, um, possibly inspired by this vision. I don't know, but um, uh, yeah, gold was very significant to them. Um, for the Greeks. Uh, Bronze is something that uh, the Greeks kind of had a monopoly on just because in order to make bronze, you need to melt uh, tin and copper together as an alloy to make bronze. And um, you find uh, both of those uh, in the region of, of Greece. And so if you're wanting to acquire bronze, Greece is where you go to do that. Uh, for Rome, I mean, they're... Their military was just founded on iron. It's it's a very practical and very hard metal, and it, it very much uh, typifies uh, uh, I don't know who they are and, and what they do. Uh, I don't know enough about Persia to see what the connection is between that and silver, but I'm sure there is one as well. Um, from our perspective, later on, we kind of see it as you know, gold, silver, bronze as being, hey, these are uh, first place, second place, and third place in the Olympics. But that's more or less, more or less looking at it, uh, possibly because of this. I, I'm, I'd, I'd be speculating. I don't know for certain. But it's interesting, though. Yeah, that yeah, there very much is a connection. Good point, Josh. Um, okay, so. Let's get into these, uh, uh, this vision in chapter 7. Daniel sees four beasts. Um, starting with the first one, uh, the, let's see, four, the first one was like a lion and it had eagle's wings. So if you're picturing a lion with uh, a pair of wings on its back, that's actually the national symbol of Babylon. Uh, there are some cool uh, uh, wall reliefs that are sitting in the British Museum uh, that they picked up out of Babylon, and I think I've got a picture of one somewhere, um, and it, it's just this lion uh, that has a pair of wings on its back, and that was their national symbol. And so, you know, as Daniel is seeing this, uh, he's recognizing very much um, Babylon going on in here. And what's kind of neat about some of these details is that he was, uh, the wings were plucked off, it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two legs like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. So it, it's showing that this beast has become something very civilized, uh, very, very manlike instead of very, very uh, ferocious. And um, it may very well be 
because of the relationship that God had with Nebuchadnezzar. And you kind of see through the book of Daniel how uh, God deals with Nebuchadnezzar and actually kind of molds him a little bit and teaches him how to be uh, a humble servant and, and how to how to really be a man. Um, You're right. Like there's, um, that's probably worth recognizing, right? Like as described here, something is lifting it off the ground, yep. making it to stand on two feet like a man, and something gave it the mind of a man. Mm-hmm. Right? So like we see... We, yeah. God, God must be doing this. Is the influence here? Yeah, that's right. that's a great point, Ben. Uh, something is doing this to the to the beast. It's not that the beast gets up in and of in and of its own power, and but for its own that something power. else yeah. ha- has caused it to become like a man, to be given the mind of a man, to be st- to stand up in a civilized manner. Something else has caused that to the beast. It, it's an external thing uh, occurring to it. And actually, that phrase, the the mind of man, was given to it, is is a phrase very similar to earlier on. In, in Daniel uh, with what happens with Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. So uh, there's a little bit of a, of a uh, uh, parallel, there. parallel going on right there. All right, going on to the second beast. It's like a bear. By the way, guess what the national symbol of, uh, of uh, the Persian Empire was? Okay. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> 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 I'm sorry. <laughs> but... It, the bear's kind of a, it is a unique uh, character because it, it, it's kind of dual-natured, much like the, uh, the Persian and the, and the uh, Medes. Um, it, it's something that can stand up uh, comfortably, and it's something that can uh, walk on all fours comfortably. You, you can see it kind of working in, in both ways. And in the way that it's described, um, you notice that uh, uh, it was raised up on one side. That's kind of showing how, even though there was this partnership within this giant beast that you've got going on, obviously one side is going to end up becoming the dominant side. And in this case, it's Persia. Um, they end up dominating the, the Medes. And um, it, it has ribs in its mouth. Uh, it mentions three ribs. I, I wouldn't read too much into the, into the ribs. Um, you know, it says, arise, devour much flesh. That kind of has to do with it, it has a lust for conquest. And, you know, we're looking at that and thinking, well, I wonder what three nations they end up conquer. I, I, I would actually look at that as saying uh, he, it's a way of saying that this beast ends up just devouring nation after nation after nation. It's not exactly a definite three nations. It's just saying it just keeps on going. And, and that's what he does. He, he just conquers. Um, so next beast, uh, this one's going to be a symbol of the Greeks, um, especially of uh, Alexander the Great. So it is a leopard. That's a pretty fast-moving uh, animal. I mean, yeah, cheetah can maybe outrun it, but I'm not sure if they even have a different word for cheetah as opposed to leopard. But uh, And that's also uh, kind of a national symbol for, um, yeah, all right, so you get the point. Wait, is that true? Huh? Is that true? The guest was trying to decide whether he should write that down or not. So, I, I will let you guys. I will let you guys look that one up. Um, notice the number of wings that the thing has. Four wings. And how many heads? Four. Four. Yeah, it has four wings and four heads. So what happened after Alexander the Great? It split into four. It split pieces. into four parts. Four wings. Yep. 
two went off and then one was to the north and one was to the south. Yep. I haven't taken notes and paying quite attention. <laughs> Good job. Um, and I like the way that verse 6 kind of ends here with, and dominion was given to it. Mm-hmm. it. It's not that this thing went out in and of its own power and was so, uh, so particularly clever. It, it was that divinity was apparently with Alexander the Great as he's just flying across the globe. Um, Finally, verse uh, verse seven, the the fourth beast enters, and this one is so uh, so terrifying, so dreadful, so exceedingly strong. And one of the things that's very different about Rome's approach to uh, being an empire, as opposed to some of these others, is Rome really had no ideals. They weren't trying for some kind of bigger, uh, bigger, more noble purpose. They just wanted to conquer and dominate. They just wanted to be in charge. And if if you weren't willing to let them dominate you, then they would just outright destroy you. Um, that's what they did. And it, Rome, uh, their approach to warfare was, and one of the reasons why they were very successful was uh, that they would fight on through the harvest time. Uh, the other nations, they, they would assemble their armies of uh, people who had to work the land in order for their families to live. And so a lot of times the wars in the ancient world were fought during the summer and during the winter so that, uh, so that the men could go home and plant and harvest during the spring and during the fall. Rome, on the other hand, had professional soldiers who didn't have to go home and do that. And so they would just fight on through. And so a lot of times they would get into a, into a fight, maybe in the middle of, uh, of the summer, and come fall, they got to go home in order to, in order to harvest. And in, in order for the livelihood of their nation and of their clans and of their families, they had to go home and harvest. Rome didn't have to. So they just kept on fighting. And so all of a sudden, uh, you know, you've got these generals that are like, my men have got to go out. home. We gotta go home. <laughs> and Rome's like, no time out for you. Yeah. So uh, Rome would end up winning simply because the other team had to leave the battlefield. Um, and so they would just come in and say, all right, we're in charge now. And, you know, it, it's some of these sort of clever tactics in terms of what they would do. But they just, they would dominate, they would crush. Um, they didn't really have a regard or an ideal. And they were very practical, uh, practical-minded people. They tended to just adopt anything and everything that seemed useful. Um, whether it was a pantheon of Greek gods that they would say, hey, we'll do this, or someone's way of architecture, they just, they would come and adopt, you know, whatever's there, whether it fit with an ideal or not, they just piece it together. Um, it was exceedingly strong, is what uh, Daniel says. Uh, terrifying, dreadful, with its teeth, it devoured, it broke things to pieces, and trampled what was left with its feet. Uh, it was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. I considered the horns. By the way, horns uh, are, in prophetic literature, horns are always representative of authority, uh, of power. Um, and there's a pretty good chance that these are specific kings, but um, it'd be really hard to definitively say, hey, these are the ten emperors or these are the ten kings. You're almost pulling together an arbitrary list if you start doing something like that. But among them, there was a little horn uh, that was apparently so so significant it was able to supplant three of the others. Um, the little ha- horn had eyes, and it was uh, speaking all kinds of blasphemous things. All right. 
So this is what's going on essentially in the heavenly realms in front of the throne of God. And he sees, uh, Daniel looks and he sees the Ancient of Days has taken his place uh, seated on the throne. And he, he describes the Ancient of Days and the description there is, is very cool. I mean, you, you have a lot of neat imagery going on there. Uh, kind of too much to unpack at this point. but um, And so you've got the remnants uh, of that beast with this one final horn that's just uh, speaking all kinds of great blasphemous things in the presence of God. Um, and then someone enters. Um, one who has... who. Uh, let's see. What is the exact phrase here? Uh, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. So this is, by the way, the boulder from the other vision. Uh, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages uh, should serve him. His dominion was an everlasting di- dominion. Notice that the culmination of this isn't the coming of the Son of Man, but it's the kingdom that the Son of Man comes to set up. Um, very much the hero of the story is that Son of Man who's finally able to silence the blasphemous beasts and put those things down and restore the order of God in the heavenly realms. But the culmination isn't, uh, isn't the coming of the Son of Man, but the kingdom that that he has to set up. Likewise, in the previous vision, the culmination isn't the stone is able to destroy uh, the statue, but that the stone is able to uh, set up uh, a mountain, something upon which we can live. Okay. Um, And then Dan... Isn't it always about the kingdom, though? Isn't it always about the coming kingdom? Because they're looking for... um, a ruler to come. They're looking at it from a military standpoint. They're looking for the army to come blazing in and set up this new this new kingdom and this new world. Is it really about the leader of the army? Uh, yeah. Is that why is that why Jesus is easily dismissed or uh, oh, he's crazy or you know it's not coming out. It's late. Yeah. Okay. Uh, l- let me touch on that just a little bit. The, the, there's a relationship between the the king and his kingdom. The kingdom is supposed to be a reflection of the king, his character, his will, his values. They're they're being determined and they're being lived out in terms of the kingdom. Um, you can take the king just sort of by himself and say, hey, here's what's going on with the king. But when you start looking at a kingdom, now you as a citizen have a place you're able to derive an identity based on the king. Otherwise, if you don't have the kingdom as part of your picture, you don't really have a place for yourself to be involved in this. It's just looking at the king uh, apart from it and saying, hey, that's great in in a theoretical realm, but where am I in it? Well, the answer to where am I in it is the kingdom. That's what kind of bridges the gap between us and the king is the kingdom. That's how we are able to... uh, to live out the will of the king, how we're able to be a reflection of the king and and what he wants to do is the kingdom. So I kind of look at the kingdom as being our relationship to the king. It's us responding to the king, to his will, to his values, to being molded in his image, to being uh, made in his likeness. And this is this is where we become a part of it and, and not just uh, the king by himself. So... 
Um, Daniel's able to get a cool interpretation uh, from uh, from an angel, I believe, here, uh, as he just sort of describes through what's going on. It more or less rehashes the, the same things before. So I'm going to jump on to uh, chapter 8. Uh, you get another vision. Uh, this will be two years later. Um, uh, Daniel gets a, a vision, and the places are, are uh, very significant in terms of uh, uh, Persian uh, history. Um, but this vision actually, it's unique compared to the other visions in that uh, we actually end up skipping the head, um, or we skip that first beast. Um, instead, instead, we start off with, uh, with Persia. Um, and in this case, we have a vision of a ram and a goat. And y- you see these two uh, in the conflict that's going on. Um, what ends up happening is you get a more detailed look at that transition uh, going from Persia into the Greeks coming. Um, and part of this is you don't need details about the transition going from Babylon to, uh, to Persia because it's about to happen. And, and so you don't really need a vision about what's about to happen. It, you know, it, it's going to happen, especially by the time uh, Daniel's book is completed. Uh, we're already in Persian territory, so you don't need an examination of of that transition from Babylon to Persia. So this one's a more detailed uh, look at we're going from Persia to uh, the Greeks. Uh, with Persia, uh, you have, let's see. Uh, okay, uh, chapter 8, verse 5. Uh, I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west. Nope, that's the other one. Um, oh, okay. I'm sorry. Yeah, the ram is the uh, is the uh, Persian and the Medes. Uh, it has two horns. Yep. Uh, it stood on the bank of of the canal. Uh, it had two horns. This is verse three, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. The one that came up last. That's the Persians. The horn of the Medes was the. Uh, was less prominent. So it's already prophesying that uh, between this alliance between the Medes and the Persians, the one that comes up last is going to become the more prominent of the two. Uh, So this ram charges westward. And by the way, if you're standing in Persia and you want to head towards the Greeks, which way do you go? You go northwest. So it heads uh, west and north and then southward. And that's where where the two end up fighting it out. Um, and then from the other direction, you have a goat. It had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. So I don't know if this is like some cool unicorn or rhinoceros or what exactly this thing is. But it, it's a... Unicorn. <laughs> yeah, there we go. So it, it's a one-horned goat. Now, remember the thing about horns is authority. So this is something that... Uh, this nation state embodied in this goat has just a singular authority to it. Whereas the other one, the ram, has two uh, seats of authority. Uh, one with the Medes, one with the Persians. In this case, uh, uh, this goat has just a singular authority uh, embodied in, um, in Alexander the Great. Uh, the ram had, uh, when they struck, it struck the ram and it broke his two horns. So Alexander the Great was able to take over uh, both the Medes and the Persians and take their authority from them. So the ram then had no power to stand before him, and he, uh, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled upon him. 
um, for his power was great. So you're seeing this struggle between the Greeks and the Persians, and essentially the Greeks win. Um, Verse 8, the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, and this is at the height of uh, Alexander the Great's power, the great horn was broken. By the way, Alexander the Great died at a very, very young age. Um, Instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Does that sound familiar, following following Alexander the Great? You know, four generals coming out. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards... So now we're getting into that time where the conflict between the various horns is going. That would have been the Ptolemies, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, No. Towards the, oh, towards, towards, towards the south. It's pointing towards the south. So if it's pointing towards the south, the east, what direction is it coming from? It comes from the north. So the, yeah. Uh, say, yeah. Okay. Um, Tower to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. Yeah. So from its perspective, the beautiful land, i.e. the holy land, is south. So he's aiming south. Um, so yeah, this is the Ptolemies, or this is I'm sorry, the Seleucids. Um, so that this little horn uh, turns out to be most likely uh, Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth, um, and then we'll get into even more detail in that uh, in a little bit in Daniel chapter eleven. Um, but this just very briefly touches on the the conflict between between these uh, previously Greek kingdoms. Uh, the let's see the horn. Uh, verse 10, it grew great even in the hosts of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and it trampled upon them. By the way, the way that Antiochus Epiphanes uh, treated uh, even foreign gods was unheard of uh, by anyone prior to him. Everyone had respect for foreign gods, um, but the way that Antiochus Epiphanes uh, treated Yahweh, it, it was an abomination. Um, and so that's kind of what's being described here. Um, and, and it's something that even pagans would have looked at him like, what are you doing? Are you trying to just upset these other foreign powers? I mean, yeah. So, um, Let's see. Uh, uh, verse 12. And a host will be given over to it uh, together with a regular burnt offering, uh, that regular burnt offering is what takes place in the, in the temple, uh, offerings because of transgression, and it will uh, it will throw truth to the ground. Uh, it will act and it will pop, prosper. Um, and then I heard a holy one, a holy one speaking, and another holy one saying to the one who spoke, "For how long uh, is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, i.e., the abomination that causes desolation?" And the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. There are the numbers. And then you've got uh, the interpretation of the dream where uh, you have it being explained to Daniel. And you'll actually see in verse 20 and 21, they actually spell out, yeah, it's the Medes and the Persians. So this is during the time of Belshazzar, who is a Babylonian. So realize that Babylon is still in charge as this uh, vision is being given to Daniel. So Daniel knows that not only is Babylon about to it, going to be uh, overthrown, but between the Medes and the Persians, he knows that it will be the Persians that will end up becoming the dominant part of the of uh, that partnership, 
and then they will be thrown down by the Greeks. Um, it's, it says in 24, yeah, the, the goat, the one-horned goat, uh, will be the king of the Greeks. Um, and so it, they go through and kind of unpack uh, some of what, what takes place in that in the second half of chapter 8. Chapter 9, uh, Daniel starts it off with a very cool prayer, and then uh, he gets interrupted, or maybe he finishes, I'm not quite sure. Uh, but Gabriel shows up in, in, at the tail end of uh, chapter 9 and says, hey, uh, decree from the Lord. The prayer is very cool. I want to get into that in our third week. I just want to go through because prayer is a really big part of Daniel. Uh, so I'll unpack that that week. Um, but I, I want to focus on the vision, um, especially what Gabriel tells Daniel about what's coming. Um, so starting in, in uh, 24, he outlines what really seems like a, a very confusing timeline. And I, I've seen a lot of people describe this, hash it out. Um, for those that uh, really su subscribe heavily to uh, premillennial dispensationalism, if you know what that idea means, um, this section is very important to you. Um, but I hate to say it, um, I really think it gets handled poorly uh, if you're leaning it towards premillennial dispensationalism. Um, if you don't take uh, these sections and cut them all apart, um, instead you actually pull it all together as a whole, uh, then you really have very little uh, other sources in order to construct this idea of premillennial dispensationalism. So this is your core text. Um, and I want to go through and really kind of handle it appropriately. Uh, he starts off verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. So right off the bat, the 70 weeks are sitting together. They're not being separated apart. Um, the word weeks, um, you need to understand that uh, in the Hebrew, the, the word weeks also means sets of seven. Um, and I learned this in, in Arabic is that uh, the word for week is seven. Uh, they would actually count off the days. The first day was the literally the first, uh, the seventh, the second, the third. And so the seventh day was literally the seventh. So a week would be a, a way of saying uh, sevens. So some Bibles will translate this as weeks. Some Bibles will translate this as sevens. Um, I think it should be best understood as sevens. But it, if you do it that way, then it doesn't really define what your period of time is, except that at the beginning of the chapter, Daniel's meditating on the book of Jeremiah, and he's meditating specifically on the decree about 70 years is the time period of the exile. And so that gives us our time period. Uh, so now what we're looking for is seven, 70 sets of seven years, culminating in a total of 490 years. So that's what we're going to be looking for is uh, what's a period of 490 years. And he's going to highlight milestones along the way. But these 490 years need to all be pulled together. Um, he lists off uh, six things that get accomplished uh, during this, these 77s. Uh, it will finish transgression. It will put an end to sin. It will atone for iniquity. It will bring an everlasting righteousness. It will seal up both vision and prophet. In other words, complete uh, vision and prophet. And anoint a most holy place or a most holy thing or person or something. A, a holy of holies will be anointed. 
right? So those are the six things that, that are going to occur in this 490 years. Jesus accomplished all those. That's the short version of it. Uh, all six of these things Jesus accomplished. And so when you're looking through this and saying uh, this premillennial idea uh, says that that last set of seven ends up taking place in the future, you have already you've got a problem because everything that needs to be accomplished has already been accomplished in the first coming of Christ. So why would... It, there's no reason for you to take those that last set of seven and throw it into the future. Um, so then uh, the angel... Kind of a big deal. Yeah, it, it really is. It, it sets up, hey, yeah. here's when things are going to take place. Right. And, and the angel actually outlines and lets you know as things are going to unfold uh, what's going to be taking place. And so the first breakdown is uh, seven sets of seven. So you're looking at a period of uh, 49 years, and it starts, the whole, this whole 490 years begins with an order to restore and build Jerusalem, uh, and it's going to come from an anointed one. Which is? Uh, or wait, let me see. It's coming from, let's see. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there will be seven weeks, then 62 weeks, and it will be built again. All right. In Hebrew, there is not a period there. After seven weeks? Correct. Okay. So it needs to be understood that the seven weeks and the 62 weeks will, will be pulled together. Um. So that's the period of time between uh, the word to rebuild Jerusalem and the coming of the anointed one, Jesus. Uh, but the rebuilding and the restoring of Jerusalem, they actually get accomplished in the, seven, uh, the first set of seven sevens. Um, it's during that time, it's right after the exile. Um, in the next 50 years, they end up... Uh, building and restoring Jerusalem in the temple. It all gets pulled together. There's also another reason for uh, outlining it this way and cutting it up this way. And it has to do with uh, um, the way that God separates time uh, as he describes in Leviticus 25. In Leviticus 25, I'll just summarize it real quick. Um, he says, you can plant your fields for six years, but on the seventh year, you need to let your, your fields rest. So every seventh year is essentially an agricultural rest. This is before rotational crops, and if that was not the case, then your fields would just be all out of uh, whatever nutrients are needed by the same crop. So God institutes a rest, not just for the people, but also for the land. So every seven years, the land rests, um, which puts people in a very dependent position because how are they going to eat during that year? Um, but, you know, it, it's them uh, acting on faith in God. Now, so you have rest. Then God takes it up a notch because that's what he likes to do is take things to the next level. So you've got rest every seven years. But then every seven, seven years, uh, you have the following year being what's known as a year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee is when uh, things are restored. So every seven years you have rest, and then to the next level you have restoration happening. So when you crank rest up to the next level, it's restoration. Um, 
the way that that's described is you don't own this land. And from Leviticus 25, 23, he, God explains to them, this land shall not be sold in perpetuity. In other words, I can't sell my land to you and you own it now. That's not allowed. Because, as God says, for the land is mine. You are strangers and sojourners with me. So God's saying, the land belongs to me and everything in it, it all belongs to me. So even if you are in debt and you sell your land, at the year of Jubilee, the land is restored to whatever household had to sell it because of their debt. Um, likewise, if in order to pay for debt, you have to sell yourself as an indentured slave or some kind of servitude, in that year of Jubilee, all slaves are freed, whether foreign or domestic, you're free. Um, it, it's a, a mechanism for restoring things. So every 50 years in Israel, or putting it another way, every 49 plus one, years in Israel, um, restoration would take place. What we have here is an outline of 69 plus 1, 70. Um, so it kind of follows the same sort of pattern as, as what God set up in terms of Jubilee. In this case, it's, it's a message of deliverance that's, being, that's taking place, but it follows the same sort of pattern, and that's why it's constructed in these sets of seven, is because it, it, it's going to point back to that section and, and saying, hey, that theme of rest and restoration, they're going to be taking place here as well. All right, so that's why the angel outlines it this way. So after the, after the, the seven years, or seven sets of seven, the 49 years, uh, Israel's reestablished as a kingdom, and then jump ahead a big chunk of time with uh, 62 sets of seven, bringing us to a total of 69. We're right on the edge of the final uh, set of seven years. This is when the Messiah shows up, and this is the point in time when John the Baptist anoints Jesus. It's during this final week that the anointed one will be cut off, will have nothing. And the result of the anointed one being rejected, uh, I, I'm interpreting a little bit, I'm, I'm throwing in just a bit there, but uh, the next phrase that's in 26 is, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and its sanctuary. That's referring to 70 AD. That is a result of the people rejecting the Messiah. Its end will come like a flood, and to the end there will be war. Desolations are decreed. Now, going back to uh, the anointed one, he'll make a strong covenant with many for f during that period of the seven weeks, or the seven years, the one week. For half of the week, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. So, if you look at the time period between Jesus showing up and starting his ministry, and so that goes on for about three and a half years until he's crucified, at which point there's no longer a need for sacrifice. But it's during his ministry that that takes place. He, he puts an end to sacrifice and offering. And it's literally at the halfway point is when that takes place. Um, and on the wings of this, uh, an abomination shall come who will make desolate. Now, a time frame isn't put on this part. On the wing, uh, uh, an abomination will come, one who makes desolate, until the decree end is poured out on the desolator. Right, that's a good point. That it, this yeah. brings uh, the abomination that will make desolate. Uh, yeah. It is not saying that it's captured necessarily within the 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. So some of the things that you need to look for is uh, there are events in this that are being described as, hey, these are milestones to watch for. And then there are also events uh, throughout this section that are the natural result of things like you've rejected the Messiah. So here's what's going to happen. And and. So Jesus comes, he brings and uh, establishes a strong covenant with many during his ministry. Um, it's a strong covenant. And when God says strong, he really means it. Um, and that takes place during the first half of that week, because that's the time when Jesus is here on earth. Um, so what goes on in the second half of the week? Um, that's when the rest of the nation of Israel gets a chance to hear about the resurrection. Um, the apostles go out through Jerusalem, they go out through Judea, and the rest of the, of the Jewish people get a chance for basically three and a half years to hear the gospel message and respond to it before the kingdom becomes a separate thing. Um, up until that point, it's kind of part of the Jewish people. Uh, but once the persecution occurs, it takes a whole separate path, and that eternal kingdom is now established. You have some; it's an, it's an entirely independent thing, and from that point on, it's its own history. It's no longer um, part of this sequence of events. It's just its own eternal thing. But there's a, a brief period of overlap of a half, as they call it, week or a half set of seven, uh, in which they're kind of under both covenants. Uh, they've still got the old covenant that. Uh, that the, is there, but once they hear the message of Jesus, they need to respond to that. So God's kind of giving a little bit of grace there going on in terms of what's taking place. Okay, um, so that's chapter 9. Uh, chapter 10 introduces a very cool figure, uh, doesn't utter a lot of prophecy. Um, I'll get into him later on next week, uh, and then we'll skip on to chapter 11. Uh, Chapter 11 is very long, and I don't really want to go through all the details of it, partly because we just don't have the time for it. But it does describe uh, a lot of that tension going back and forth between the, uh, the kingdoms in the north and the kingdoms of the south. Uh, this should be understood in terms of the, the Seleucids versus the, versus the Ptolemies. Um, are there names in here somewhere? The names are not here at this place, other than uh, Greece. It's mentioned at the beginning of the chapter and uh, that Greece is involved in it. Uh, it does mention the four winds and that sort of thing. Um, but at this point, there isn't a lot of detail being brought in. Now, there are liberal scholars out there that think that Daniel was not written... Uh, back in 500 BC, they they think that Daniel was written in 160 uh, or so uh, BC or 165 or something after uh, the events of Antiochus Epiphanes and the whole contest. And they say so because there's so much detail in chapter 11 especially that uh, that directly connects to the events in history that they believe that uh, this book of Daniel was actually written uh, right as those events uh, took place. In other words, it's saying, uh, yeah, he's being prophetic after the fact. But it, it's kind of a testament to just how spot on uh, Daniel's prophecy was that liberal scholars are, are saying uh, he must have written it in hindsight because it so clearly uh, describes that event in, uh, in 160 uh, BC and the, the rebellion. But that's not exactly the end of the story. Uh, it goes on to chapter 12, 
and you end up having an eternal kingdom come in. You introduce yet another angel, Michael. Um, Daniel has a tendency to name drop. I'll, I'll describe why that's important next week. But um, you, you've got Daniel or Michael showing up here. Uh, you've got a couple other things. And then you also have a, a breakdown of days uh, right at the close of the book. Um, just kind of emphasizing that even though you're going to have a big hurdle right there with Antiochus Epiphanes and the way that he ends up desecrating the temple uh, in verse 11 uh, of chapter 12. And from that time that the regular burnt offering is taken away um, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there will be 1,290 days. That's roughly three and a half years plus one month. Verse 12. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335th day. All right, historically, here's what happened. Antiochus Epiphanes wanders in June 1st. Um, he desecrates the temple, throws a pig on the altar. 1,290 days later, they're able to consecrate the temple and dedicate it. Um, and then 45 days after that, right on the mark, Antiochus Epiphanes dies. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335th day because... Because at that point, the dude is dead. <laughs> so, those are the visions of Daniel as he's uh, instituting and describing a roadmap going from where they are as they're lost in, in captivity, in exile, what's going on. And God's basically saying, hey, I'm still sovereign. I'm still letting you know, here's what's, here's what's coming down the pipes and letting you know, not only will you be delivered from this exile, but I've got an eternal kingdom coming that has an even greater uh, deliverance aspect to it. Um, I'll get into Daniel chapter 4 uh, next week just because we're kind of running out of time and I want to save it a little bit. It tends more into the narrative section. But it, it's a very cool um, story and just the short version of it is God is in power, is the one who is supremely in power. And he demonstrates that to Nebuchadnezzar who was the first, as you would call it, king of kings, the first guy who's able to work at this empire craft. Um, and God very much demonstrates to him uh, where his power comes from and what happens, basically what he would be like without God's power. And then he's able to just as easily restore uh, his power to him, um, which is very cool because uh, it parallels uh, a description of Jesus in Revelations where it says, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And in Daniel, you have God doing the exact same thing in, in Revelation you have Jesus doing this it, it kind of shows that connection between the two um, we'll get into that a little bit more next week but um, yeah any questions over the visions the stuff I know we skipped over a lot of details kind of did a whirlwind of, of history and whatnot but I'm going to read through it again this week okay. uh, based upon what you've given us and then uh, I feel like I'll have questions next week okay uh, we'll handle some of those questions then at the beginning of the section and then uh, next week uh, what I'm going to be doing is actually going through Daniel chapter by chapter, and we're going to be looking for Jesus in it, uh, in each chapter, and just kind of highlighting either him or maybe a shadow of him or something that seems to be saying, hey, Jesus is very relevant to this chapter at the very least. Um, and then the final week, uh, we're going to go through in a chapter by chapter way. Um, but this time we're looking at uh, just how important prayer is in the life of Daniel and what ends up happening because of prayer. So, yeah, that's what's coming up.
Yay. I wanted to get that on there. <laughs> <laughs> Oopsie, yay.